Ninth Story Studios, giving story a voice. This is The Wicked Library. The Wicked Library is a horror fiction podcast. It is dark, scary, and often disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, and welcome to The Darkness in Between, Season 1, Episode 9, our interseasonal entertainment as we work on Season 11. I'm Daniel Foytek, and I thank you for listening. A big thank you to those who took the time to rate the show five stars and write a short review for us on iTunes. Your reviews help others find the show, and we love hearing from you. If you're on Twitter, you can find us at Wicked Library. Please help us grow our dark horde. A big thank you to those of you who are supporting the show. Without you, this show would not be possible. Our authors and everyone else involved in making the show, thank you for your ongoing support of this show and of independent horror fiction. If you're not already supporting the show, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash wicked library. For as little as $3 a month, you can help us keep making the show you love and get fun rewards. Today's dark tale, Until There's Nothing Left, was written by J.A.W. McCarthy and is told by Addison Peacock. Until There's Nothing Left by J.A.W. McCarthy Her hands are warmer than I thought they would be, even though I knew better. I had feared spindly fingers that might snap and crumble at my touch like that seance scene in Beetlejuice when Adam grabs Barbara's hand and it disintegrates. We used to watch Beetlejuice together when we were kids. We would dare each other to say his name three times, and she would slap her hand over my mouth on the last one between Beetle and Juice. She always waited until the last second even though she claimed it would be awful if it really happened. She said she hoped the afterlife was like that, that she was looking forward to haunting people. I said I would be her Lydia. I think about that movie often, about how I'm supposed to take care of her and how I might fail. We're supposed to watch it together. First thing, she said, under a blanket on the couch with the lights out. I'll need a drink, she would remind me and you'll have to tell me everything I missed. It's not all spells or animal sacrifices or trading souls. It's just something I can do. The first time I was six or seven, when I saw a possum get hit by a car in front of our house, for what must have been at least 20 minutes, I just sat and stared at that poor dead animal. Then, just as I was standing up to get the shovel, the possum rose to its feet, hissed at me, and ran off across the street. So maybe that possum wasn't really dead. It was just playing possum, as my father said, laughing at his own joke. But my grandmother wasn't playing possum. I saw her in her casket. She wasn't getting up from that one. I was twelve then, my first funeral. My mother hadn't stopped crying since the hospital, and I just wanted to fix that. I wanted everything to go back to the way it was. That night after the service, while my father slept and my mother stared vacantly at the TV, I snuck out to the cemetery and sat at my grandmother's grave. I thought about my mother's ashen face, her permanently red eyes, the way she had stopped hearing me when I called for her. I thought about what I was sure I had done with the possum. An hour later, riding my bike home, I saw my grandmother 
in her 1950s wedding dress sitting on the sidewalk in front of Sears. She asked me why she didn't have any shoes. By 16, I had brought back one possum, two cats, one dog, my grandmother, and a boy from my literature class who had been hit by a truck while skateboarding. I guess I had a lot of feelings about the quiet boy who sat in the back reading Shirley Jackson when we were supposed to be discussing Shakespeare. It took years to control it, years to pinpoint and specify and not bring up every creature buried in the vicinity. There was a time when I thought I would quit altogether. Stop working against nature, because I know now that what I can do is wrong and selfish and causes more pain than just leaving them in the ground. With her, though, I have to try. And this time, the last time, I have to get it right. She doesn't come back craving brains or human blood. I don't have to give her rabbits, then goats, then high school bullies in order to keep her human. Right away, she is herself. And she eats saltines. And she's quiet. She knows me. She remembers me. And remembers her home. She remembers Beetlejuice, too. I help her out of the stiff black lace dress our parents had chosen and get her into her favorite husky sweats that always sit neatly folded on the end of her bed in the apartment we haven't yet cleaned out. I make her favorite drink, a Manhattan with two cherries. She drinks it all at once, but doesn't say anything. I arrange the blanket over her, making sure the edges are tucked under her feet the way she likes. I ask her if she wants more saltines. She still won't say anything. I keep wondering why she doesn't have any questions. If I'd been gone for ten days, I would want to know if anyone had touched my stuff and who was still crying over me, and if the embarrassing potty training photos came out after the service. I would want to tell her about all the things I saw, what it's like on the other side. During the movie, I catch myself eyeing the dent in the side of her head. It doesn't look too bad. Her hair covers most of it. You haven't missed much, I tell her. She knew about the woods first. Kids from the high school went there to drink and smoke and fuck, but they never went in much deeper than where the trees start to knit together and the moss overtakes your shoes. She got her first kiss in those woods, smoked her first joint, lost her virginity and countless earrings there. She started letting me tag along when I was a sophomore. We sat around the fire pit with her friends, all these worldly girls with shiny hair and skin that glowed with vitality instead of french fry grease. While they talked about college prospects and sneaking backstage and who got a boob job, I tried my best to keep up, to prove that I was as worthy as she told them I was. I threw up malt liquor for the first time in those woods, got rejected by my crush there, held in lungfuls of smoke as my throat burned and my friends kept asking me if I was okay. I lost earrings there, too. Lighters, keys, everything that meant something to me. If we had a little brother or sister, they wouldn't go to those woods now. Even back when we were kids, before we started hanging out there, people were talking about the crying woman with the big red hole in the middle of her chest. Some said she was a witch, others a ghost. 
There were stories of kids going just a little deeper into the trees and feeling bony fingers along their backs as they made out. The woman would grab a bare shoulder or a fistful of hair and wail or mumble something unintelligible. She plucked keys and quarters from pockets and kept anything you dropped. Even up front around the fire pit, you could sometimes hear her crying in the distance. By the time I graduated, no one was going to the woods anymore. The risk of getting caught drinking or fucking was better than getting groped by a sobbing witch. When I went, I was usually too drunk to notice the figures rustling behind us. But I did hear the crying once. I had let a boy lure me deeper into the trees than I had ever gone, and when I heard the woman's wails rise and pour towards us, I took off running towards the firelight, leaving my date holding my bra as he called my name. I've been a few times since high school, but it isn't because of nostalgia or trying to relive those blustery firsts. Now just thinking about those woods fills me with dread and regret. I avoid going anywhere near that part of town. And even knowing all those dense, mysterious acres are in the distance drives me to take the long way, despite the waste of time and gas. I was going to leave this town, but she didn't want to go. If she wants to see those woods again, I won't let her. It's the one thing I won't do for her. The first night goes okay. After the movie, all she says is, tired and it makes sense, and I help her into bed, and she seems to fall asleep right away. I settle on the couch with a blanket and pillow so I have a view of her open bedroom door. My eyes grow heavy thinking about the things I want to ask her, the things the others never answered, like if she was in heaven or if it was like being under anesthesia, like you're awake one moment, then suddenly you're not, and all you have is the vague ache of what happened in between. Did she slip in and out of rooms, trying to communicate with us? Did she attend her own funeral, counting tears and ex-boyfriends? Was she worried that I wouldn't bring her back? Just before dawn, I'm awakened by someone standing over me. There's blood, shiny and dark, slicked over her lips and down her chin, a little splatter on the collar of her gray husky sweatshirt. She's staring at me, unblinking, and holding out her palm between us. She's offering me a molar and an incisor, and I'm afraid that how badly I wanted it didn't change anything. That nothing had changed this time. He followed me home, the boy from my literature class. Even though I didn't really know him, I went to his memorial service. I sat in the back row with our school's vice principal and who I would later learn were four of his cousins. I was the only one there from our class. I didn't sneak out to his grave at night or cry over him or make any wishes, but I did think about him. I had seen him in the woods a few times, alone with a book when there weren't many people around the fire pit, then drinking beers far off with his friends when it started to get crowded. I had even seen him go deep into the trees with a girl once and I remember not being able to keep up with the conversation because I kept watching for him to come back out. Sometimes I would see him skating with his friends in the quad at lunch. One time he asked me about the Barbara Gowdy book I was reading. Then I saw him reading it himself the next day. 
He showed up at my house two days after the funeral. She saw him first, standing in our backyard after our parents had gone to bed, and she came to my room and said, You did it again, didn't you? I didn't know what to do with him. In the dark of my bedroom, he immediately began to peel off the suit his family had buried him in, tugging at the pants and shirt as if he didn't remember how to unzip zippers and unbutton buttons. He ended up tightening his tie until he was choking. I tried to get him back into his shirt and pants, but he kept shedding them as quickly as I could get them on him. From the little bit of moonlight that leaked through my window, I could see dark red hollows under his ribs and streaked up to the center of his chest, the edges stippled purple and black. For the next three days, he stayed in my room, wearing my bathrobe and pajama pants while I faked sick so I could stay home from school. I brought him water and trail mix and carefully explained to him that he could never leave my room without me, as if he were a puppy I was hiding from my parents. I snuck him leftovers from dinner, but he wouldn't touch them. The only thing he ate was saltines. She said I couldn't keep him, and I got mad at her because it wasn't my fault. Not this time. And he'd already made it one day longer than our grandmother, so I thought maybe I had a shot at finally getting it right. I figured once I got him talking and close to normal again, I could take him to his family and leave it to them to figure out what to do next. He was good, he was quiet, and he read every book in my room, and he never slept. He got in my closet without prompting whenever he heard footsteps outside my door. On the third night, she even suggested that I bring him downstairs to watch TV while our parents were at a movie. He sat between us on the couch, and he even laughed a couple of times during Beetlejuice, and in that moment I believed it really was going to work out this time. I found myself imagining him back at school, reading in the back of Lit, skateboarding with his friends, smiling at me from across the fire pit. Then that night, while everyone was asleep, I came back from the bathroom to find him sitting on my bed, his fingers and face wet with blood. In the saltines box, I found six teeth, four fingernails, and multiple plaits of thick brown hair the ends sticky and anchored by pink bits of scalp. We're pretending it didn't happen, because unlike the boy from my literature class, she started talking, and she sleeps a little, and she even ate half of the steak that I made for her. She ate it normally, too, fork and knife, no bare hands, and her missing teeth don't seem to be bothering her. She brushes her long, dark hair in the morning, just like she used to. The only difference being that she now has to be careful to arrange it over the dent. She dresses herself and keeps all her clothes on. When I stand next to her in the bathroom, all elbows and knocked shoulders like when we were teens jockeying over the mirror, I breathe her in, and I'm reassured. No graveyard moss or musty crypts or the sickly sweet smell of rotten fruit that I imagined I might encounter. Our grandmother had smelled like a mixture of the perfume she always wore and those plastic dry-cleaning bags at first. Then the damp, sour odor moved in quickly in a matter of hours. The boy from my class had smelled of wet laundry left overnight, then an earthy, peaty smell that got stronger every time he came back. 
but she's different. Perfumes sunk into her hair, faded but lingering, and the same cucumber lotion she used to smooth onto her face every night before bed. I tell myself that she's different from them because I got it right this time. You know the place where you buried the teeth? She begins one morning, leaning into her reflection. When she pulls on her lower lip, I cringe. I'm reminded that it can happen at any time, right after she starts to forget the things we did together. Yeah, the back corner of the yard. Remember when Mom started talking about planting gardenias back there? I nearly puked. She smiles like she remembers. A small relief. Are my teeth there? I haven't done anything with them yet, I answer, though I'm thinking. I won't bury them with the others. Not yet. She nods at the mirror, runs her fingers gently over her lips. Good, she says. I think I want to keep them anyway. It's only been two teeth so far, so a week later when she says she's ready to go out, I agree. She seems to enjoy getting ready, sliding into her favorite skinny jeans and leather jacket, blotting and powdering her lips between coats of lipstick like she taught me to do in high school. Kiss-proof and other things-proof, she had promised with a wink. I drive us to a bar two towns over where we won't know anyone. It's dark, with the worn sexiness of red velvet curtains and loners sipping bourbon to Bill Callahan songs. Three guys at different tables look up from their drinks and dates the minute we walk in. I suggest a table in the back corner, but she's already striding to the bar, buoyed by all of the eyes that follow her across the room. It doesn't take long before she's flirting with the bartender. Openly. Shamelessly. Worse than she would have done just a few weeks ago. The more agitated I get, the more she giggles and preens, and I start thinking about how the boy from my class didn't speak at all. How the only times our grandmother spoke were to ask questions I couldn't answer. I wanted her back more than anyone ever before. And that is why it worked this time. It's going to be okay, I reassure myself as I watch her. I start drinking my gin and tonics a little faster, letting the warm bite settle my limbs. The bartender is young and cute, and he flirts back leaning across the bar to whisper into her ear as the place gets louder. He even brings us a plate of stuffed dates on the house, and I notice him watching her as she delicately pulls each bite between her lips. One bite and I've got bacon and blue cheese all down my chin. She downs four Manhattans in a row and mouths to me, I feel nothing. She keeps drinking until the bartender cuts us both off. I haven't been more than 15 feet from her since she came back but the alcohol and my new sense of optimism have convinced me to allow myself a smoke. Outside, staring across the street at the other bars and restaurants full of people, talking and laughing, and doing the same normal things she's doing at this very moment, I start to imagine what will happen next. For now, I can keep her in her apartment and keep everyone else out. We have privacy and time, things I didn't have before. Once I know she's fine and not like the boy and not like our grandmother, I'll be able to tell our parents. I'm picturing the looks on their faces when I go back inside and find that both she and the bartender are gone. 
I scan the room, panic tightening my jaw when I don't see her face among the diminishing crowd. She's done this before, run off with some guy she just met, but at least she would always tell me where she was going. And besides, this time is different, and she knows she can't just leave. I go back to our seats at the bar in case I somehow missed her. I finish the remnants of gin and ice in my drink and wait for her to come back. My cocktail napkin is soaked through, leaving little bits of red paper on my fingertips as I pick at it and wad it up and flick it behind the bar. A different bartender comes and asks me if I want another. I tell myself that she's in the bathroom, and the cute bartender's shift is over. After paying the tab, I head for the bathroom in the very back of the bar. Outside the women's room, I pause when I hear feet shuffling behind the door. She's about to come out, I think, freshly lipsticked and chiding me for worrying so much. But I don't want to open the door. The image of my grandmother in her wedding dress floods my mind, her fingers clawing at her chest, tearing through fabric and digging out little chunks of flesh. I had screamed for her to stop, but I didn't actually try to stop her because I was scared and I didn't know what to do and I didn't want to touch her. I stood there, crying and watching as she busted through her brittle ribcage and pulled out her shriveled heart. I remember how she held it out to me, her palms filling up with blood even though her heart wasn't moving, wasn't beating. It was just dead and leaking, a slowly deflating balloon. The first thing I see as I push open the bathroom door is the bartender backed up against the sink, blood smeared all over his mouth and chin. She's right in front of him, blood all over her mouth, too, but unlike him, she looks more confused than scared. She's peering over his shoulder at the mirror, examining her reflection. She touches her chin and looks at her fingers in surprise. When she opens her mouth, more blood dribbles out. The bartender turns to me, his eyes huge. I can't tell if he's injured, if it's all his blood or hers or both. She's crazy. You gotta do something about her. She's fucking crazy, he exclaims. Then he's pushing past me and back out into the bar. Are you okay? I ask her once we're alone. She shakes her head and then starts to cry. The tears streak tracks through the blood, diluting what rolls onto her shirt. In the sink, I see what looks like half of a tongue. I took the boy from my class back to his house. She went with me the first time, in the middle of the night, and held my hand as I begged him to go inside. He regarded the narrow white two-story as if he couldn't quite place it, then stared at me over his shoulder as I offered encouragements. It's okay. They want you back. They can help you, I kept saying, though I knew that wasn't true. I cried on the drive home, thinking of him in his crumpled suit, hand on the doorknob, as she assured me that I was doing the right thing. Two hours later, he was in my bedroom again. Having found him in our backyard without his jacket and shoes just before dawn, she brought him to my room, and the three of us sat there on the end of my bed, watching the sky turn from black to navy to orange. When I got home from school that day, I found him in my closet, picking at his remaining fingernails. 
He had spent the day reading the entire Narnia series and filling my coat pockets with his blood-streaked teeth. She drove us to his house again that night, and we didn't leave until we saw him go inside. He came back the next night, shirtless and covered in dirt and tiny scratches as I hurried him in from the backyard. In my room, I picked out of his remaining hair bits of grass and leaves as crumbly as the saltines he ate while staring out my window at the flickering streetlights down the block. I put him in one of my father's sweatshirts and did everything I could to convince him to go home. I told him he couldn't keep coming back here because she was leaving for college in the fall and I couldn't do this without her. The following afternoon, when he tore through his forearm down to the bone as she and I stood there watching, she told me she would do whatever it took to help me make this right. This can't be like Grandma, she said, drawing her arm around me. We watched him chew his own flesh in the pocket of his right cheek, where he still had his top and bottom teeth, blood seeping from between his sunken lips with a comical sort of squeak. She helped me clean him up and tie his hands behind his back. He never struggled, not even when we loaded him into the car for the last time. I'm following her. She knows it, even though she never looks back. The first time I followed her in my car, driving as slowly as I could while begging her to get in as if we were quarreling lovers. Then the next night, when I saw her get out of bed, I let her have a head start before following on foot. She kept looking over her shoulder and motioning for me to go back. She even grabbed my arms and shook me and started to cry. Tonight, though, we both know it's not worth trying to stop me. When we get to the edge of the woods, I let her make it to the fire pit before I take her hand, and we sit on one of the overturned logs. There are still beer bottles sunk into the dirt and peeking out from the grass, Rainier and Coors Light and others I remember drinking, and I wonder if any of them are mine. She stares into the fire pit with me, assessing the dead leaves and other debris that have gathered there, what little we can see in the dark. We sit like this for a long time, because I don't know what to say that won't end in crying or begging. I'm just glad she's sitting with me. I'm glad that we're alone. You can't give up now, I finally say, and I'm struck by the cliché, though I've never said these words before. You've done better than the others. You're doing better. You don't belong here. She looks down at her hand, still in mine, and shakes her head. Listen to me. It's okay. It's gonna take time, but you've already proved. <laughs> we'll get there, okay? You're not like them. She pulls her hand from mine. Then, as if to demonstrate just how wrong I am, she starts to pick at one of her six remaining fingers, unraveling a ribbon of skin into her lap. Are you worried about the bartender? I try. You didn't hurt him, you know that, right? He's fine. You haven't hurt anyone. Maybe we went out too soon, but we have lots of time to get there, okay? We have plenty of time. She doesn't say anything, just continues to pull meat from bone. 
I watched the blood snake down her wrist, another sleeve ruined. I'll come here every night if I have to, I swear. I'm not giving up on you. I imagine my nights spent like this, the long trek to the woods like it's our after-dinner constitutional. She's staring into the trees now. Somehow even thicker than when we used to come here as teens, shapes outlined in what little moonlight penetrates. She'll go deeper and deeper every night because I will never be able to convince her. Because she knows that I am wrong. And when I fall behind her, there will be pieces of her for me to follow. Teeth. Fingernails. Hair. Like she's shedding until there's nothing left for me to hold on to. Because we are here, I have failed. Please. Shaking her head again, she stands up and turns toward the trees. Even though I'm right behind her, she doesn't run. The trees are getting closer and closer together, but she walks confidently while I stumble through the darkness. Every time I grab her arm or shoulder, she pushes me back. I lose a shoe and scream her name and fall on my ass. I have to run to catch up. When I start to cry, she finally stops and turns around and wraps her arms around me. Please. I hear, soft and round and broken against my ear. I cry into her hair. I try to memorize how this feels. The rise and fall of her chest, the imprint of her fingers on my back. Then, in my jacket pocket, as she takes my lighter. Unlike our grandmother, now just ahead of us. Her heart will stay in its place. Unlike the boy from my class... She has come here on her own, and she won't return to me. They'll take her, and the stories will continue. And I will never do this again. I'm sorry, I say when she releases me. This time I stay where I am as I watch her walk deeper into the woods towards everyone who is waiting for her. To find out more about today's authors and voice actors, please visit thewickedlibrary.com and look at their bio pages. The lead editor and executive producer is Scarlett R. Alge. Our resident composer and executive producer is Nico Viteza of We Talk of Dreams. Artwork for today's episode was created by Jeanette Andromeda, our art director and executive producer. Our showrunner and producer is Daniel Foytek. That's me. The Wicked Library is created by Ninth Story Studios. All rights reserved. <laughs>